the beautiful star-filled dark sky is more than just romantic. It's also a big part of some species migration tactic. I love all those additional adjectives in there. <laughs> I'm getting better and better at this. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to Hannah and Eric Go Birding, a podcast by birders for birders. I'm Hannah, and he's Eric. And we created this podcast to share adventures, sometimes misadventures, and opinions that we have on different birding topics. We are definitely not experts in anything that we discuss that might be controversial. We want you to remember, there are own opinions, and they might be different from yours. They might be. They might be. Yeah. It's, it's entirely possible. I feel like going into my FM voice, Your like FM. my mom accuses me of doing every once in a while. <laughs> this is Hannah. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. And I lost... For those of you listening, that was there. Hannah. <laughs> I ran out of air at the end of that. <laughs> it was too wispy. <laughs> So anyways, anyways. Um, we got some things going on. Just to give you a little heads up first before we get started. Um, we're going to the Tucson, oh, well, the Southeast Arizona Birding Festival. That uh, takes place in the Tucson area, yeah. the greater Tucson area. <laughs> I know, we just call it the Tucson Festival. And it's like, that's not what it's called. Yeah, Southeast Arizona Bird Festival. <laughs> yes. Um, so we're really excited about that. And we got a wonderful gift uh, from a Tucson birder that we met mm -hmm. in December. It's their... Uh, the Tucson Nature Center and Tucson Audubon. Yeah, the Tucson Audubon. Book, Finding Birds in Southeast Arizona. So thank you so much to Mike for sending that to us. That was very generous of you. Yeah, it's super exciting. We've been reading through it, trying to figure out exactly where can we target to hit our uh, remaining, like, nine lifers like that we're 15, looking at. 15, I think. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But some of them are less than 5%. So yeah. it's kind of a, you know, wide swing. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, this book, this book's got all sorts of good information. Wirebound book. It's kind of kind of exciting. Yeah, so thank you so much. This is really nice of you. Yeah, for sure. Um, besides that, we also have the Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival in November that we are super excited about as well. So that will... I can't remember the dates right now. I think it's like November 11th or the 14th. But yeah, it's the beginning of November. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. check that out too. Yeah, so before that, and technically kind of before the two, the Southeast Arizona Bird Festival, is another really exciting thing that was actually the impetus for us making this episode, what we're doing it about, is the Perseid Meteor Shower. It starts, uh, it starts earlier than August 11th, but August 11th is the beginning of the peak of the Perseid Meteor Shower. So this is a super exciting meteor shower. It's one of the first meteor showers that we were like, let's go out and see it. Yeah, like that was like a target. Like do we we need to do these night, set these nights aside to go do something. Do you remember what we did? I can't remember. I know. I know we did something. We were living in Houston, mm -hmm. and we. Um, I, I was like, I know where these farms are, oh, <laughs> like outside of Houston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we took my convertible and just like went on the side of a farm road and just sat there and watched the the stars. And actually, I think a sheriff stopped yeah. to check on us because we were parked in a weird spot. And we're like, we're just looking at stars. Everything's fine. We talked to him for a pretty good amount of time, though. So two things about that. We talked to him for a while and got him a little bit interested in looking up. And I think some some uh, some meteors Flew, flew through and so he got to see a couple while we were standing there talking to him and then also he scared the heck out of me when he turned the lights on and i <laughs> i had the door open and i turned and my phone fell out and it shattered part of the screen oh was that what happened? yeah that's that's how i broke that phone so that's funny <laughs> so that was that was back in whatever year that was 20 like 16 so harris county you owe eric a new phone yeah seriously harris <laughs> county sheriff <laughs> you, he, you scared my phone onto the gravel 
<laughs> anyway, so the Perseid meteor shower is one of the best meteor showers to go look at. Um, like Eric said, it's going to happen August 11th, 12th, and 13th. And there's not going to be a full moon, I no, guess. There's supposed to be no moon or almost no moon um, for for a span during during the peak. So that's that's super exciting because the moon, for anybody that's any anybody, anybody that's a, uh, that likes to go out and look at stars and stuff, like amateur astronomers and all that stuff the the moon is super exciting to look at but it also kind of ruins it obscures everything yeah it's it it creates its own essentially light pollution <laughs> that darn moon when that are we gonna take moon, care of it and it, 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 it makes it difficult because it's just so bright with the, <laughs> the sun reflecting off of it it just gets so bright sometimes that you just can't uh you can't see even some of the bigger celestial bodies like some of the close planets and stuff you, they just like disappear in the wash of the moon so anyways, um, this is a good meteor shower to go out on because you can see a lot of meteors typically. Um, but of course, it always helps if you get to a place that has very little light pollution. Yeah. So that's uh, what we're going to be talking about in a little bit. But first, we have some reviews from listeners. Eric, take it away. <laughs> I'm taking it away. I'm taking it away. So we got two reviews during this, uh, during this last cycle. Um, the first one was from Luke and STL. Uh, five-star review fun content he says uh laid back bird banter easy fun listening i enjoy hearing about adventures of fellow birders and their trips afield conversation is free-flowing and can wander at times but still entertaining one of the bird podcasts i look forward to each time it arrives perhaps it's just me but the episodes are a good bit quieter than my other podcasts and i have to turn the volume way up to hear clearly while driving that's my own suggestion a bit more volume smiley face so as you can tell, Eric and I are yelling into the microphone now. <laughs> no, so I, I, I've, I've got that comment before, and I, I made an adjustment, and then I didn't receive any comments for a while. So I'll go ahead and make another adjustment starting on this episode. And uh, Luke, if you want to send us an email and say, ask, let, let us know if it's any better, then uh, I'll, I'll try to, I'm, I'll, I'll up it a little bit more. I, I just don't want to like blow it like crazy, <laughs> like hardcore. So you know. Well, we appreciate it, and thank you for the feedback. We'll we'll give it a try, but of course, we're not experts, so we're, a lot of it's trial and error, like Eric said. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what is this, like 70 episodes in of trial and error? It's like 80. 80 episodes in of trial, yeah, oh my gosh. I know. Lots of lots of error. At some point, you'd think we'd get better at it. No. No, that's, you don't, you don't get better at things. That's, that's the thing. Maybe you don't. <laughs> Most people do. Yeah, I, I guess. Uh, um, so our second one is from Jason Hall, who we had the pleasure of talking to um, a couple weeks ago about uh, our trip to Zaxenbach. Mm-hmm. You say authentic, welcoming, educational, and fun. Just a tremendous birding podcast. The ability of Hannah and Eric to describe their birding adventures in a way that tells the listener, you can do this too. From tips and tricks of the trade to being open about things that they learn through their journeys about the birds, the terrain, the people, and each other. If you love this podcast, be sure to listen to Women Birders as well. Hannah delivers a fun environment and great conversations with brilliant women birders. Well, thank you, Jason. That was super nice of you. Um, Really appreciate it and all, you know, the feedback that we've received from everyone. Yeah, and that's fantastic segue into something that I always forget to mention. I think I've not mentioned it enough times. But if you do like listening to us, you should tune into Hannah's podcast that she does by herself. She does all the all the amazing hard work that it takes to edit and post it and social media ties it and all that stuff. Stop flirting with me. <laughs> the Women Birders Happy Hour. So check that out. Who do you have on deck? Uh, 
Well, I, I'm not sure yet. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, who did you just have? <laughs> I just had uh, Nat Forstick, who's a um, researcher in uh, New Zealand and is actually the vice president of the New Zealand Ornithological, Ornithological Society. So it was so much fun to talk with her. And we came up with a fun drink for that episode, uh, which is all based around uh, Chatham Island Black Robins, a species that I'd never even heard about before and had the pleasure of learning more about through Nat and also research. So, um, so if yeah, you want to drink a, a Black Robin, it's delicious. <laughs> yeah, it's t- t- tune into that and Hannah will give you the recipe. Yep. So uh, thank you all for your reviews. We appreciate it. And getting into what we're here to talk about today, which are international dark skies. Surprise, surprise. We're just <laughs> talking about, we were just talking about being able to look up at the sky just, just moments ago. You know that meteor shower? <laughs> yeah, the meteor shower we just mentioned. We it's circled back around. Much easier to, to see if, if you have a dark sky. So dark skies are something that we really enjoy talking about. And when we're in an area... And we see that, you know, there's, oh, there's no lights out here. Um, we think about, you know, the why that's good for human health and for animals and for, you know, just the world ar- around. Mm-hmm. Um, John will tell us much, much more about why dark skies are important. But I think it's something for you to recognize, you know, when you're in an area that has way too much overhead light at night or, you know, not. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's something, and we'll, we'll mention it with John, so we, we don't really need to talk about it right now, but the, um, I'll, I'll still mention it because I started to. The, um, the, we, we started thinking about dark skies when we were in Texas and we were part of the Texas Master Naturalists and there was a whole conversation about... It was about, like the very first meeting we went to. Yeah. So it, it like immediately brought dark skies to mind. And we, and we talked with John a little bit about um, how to get involved and how to do all that all kind of documenting and helping and all that stuff. But it's definitely something that we hadn't thought of until somebody kind of just pointed it out to our face. Like, I, I've always, growing up, um, Portland General Electric in the city of Portland. Um, Oregon. Oregon. Um, they changed out all of the streetlights for LEDs because they were more energy efficient. But at the same time, they were, I think, 7,000 Kelvin is what the, the coloration was. So okay. it's like the very bright white, almost blue sort of light is what they changed them out to. And that was, I mean, it was it was back in like the early 2000s so it was like oh leds were brand new so it was like super exciting these are half the energy but the light is a really bad type of light for the environment and for human health so it's just like they, they made this jump and so i back then i had no idea i was like oh that's so cool it's for half the electricity you get so many more lumens so it's so much more bright brighter but it just kind of it, it, it brighter isn't always better and so well, John John kind of talks a little bit about this in the interview. Yeah, and I think it's important, and I'm, I know he'll mention it. I think it's important <laughs> to say that, like, nighttime light isn't a bad thing, uh, but it's that it needs to be directed and it needs to uh, be useful. It shouldn't just be, like, pointed up to the sky just so, you know, darkness doesn't shine down. Yeah. And actually, after we talked to John, and we did go sit through a lecture with Portland Audubon about this about a year and a half ago, we had... Um, our local power company put a baffle around our light, our the street light that's just outside our window because it was shining into our house. Yeah. And so we had... The light a, was trespassing. It was. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote it a ticket. <laughs> um, so anyways, that's something that you can do. Uh, you can ask your power company to do that so it doesn't shine, you know, um, ineffectively. Yeah. And generally, if it's shining in an offensive manner, it's shining into your lights, the power company will 
for the most part, I've only ever seen them do it for free. Like it's yeah. the light's not doing what it should do, and they'll go out and correct it. When I worked for the for the um, the composite crew, when I was a lineman, when I was the telecom portion of the line line crew, where we're doing everything, that was a number of the violations that we ran on were were uh, baffles that were ineffective or were pointing in the wrong direction, so that we would put up put up a the screen to point the light straight at the street instead of it trespassing back back behind itself into the windows of people's houses interesting yeah that was one of the things we were doing and it was just someone would call in for a complaint and then we'd go out and fix it anyways anyways so, uh, completely that's completely unrelated <laughs> to birds and dark skies and all i'm kind of really but very very distantly so anyways uh join us for this chat with uh john barentine who is the director of public policy with international dark skies association Okay, well, awesome. Thank you, uh, John, for joining us for this episode. Would you please tell us about yourself? Yes, well, thank you both, Hannah and Eric, for having me on. Uh, my name is John Barentine, and I'm the Director of Public Policy at the International Dark Sky Association at our headquarters here in Tucson, Arizona. Oh, that's got to be a fantastic place to be. Are you originally from that area? Uh, not from here, but quite close to here. I grew up in Phoenix and I was born in Arizona and I went off and worked and got educated in other states and came back here ultimately after being away for about 15 years. Uh, so it was very definitely like coming home. So what kind of background do you have to be, you know, with International Dark Skies? Did you get your degrees in like meteorology or something like that? I'm actually an astronomer. Uh, by training uh, uh, through the, the PhD level. I did professional astronomy for a while. And uh, long before that, I was an amateur astronomer. And when I was growing up in a fairly big city, uh, in conditions that were already by then fairly light polluted, and trying to be an amateur astronomer, it didn't really dawn on me that there was something else that there was, you know, there was another way of seeing the night sky out there that wasn't affected by light pollution. And I don't think I saw a, a really honestly dark night sky probably until I was about maybe 10 or so. Oh, wow. um, so that, that was a revelation, right? Like it doesn't have to be this way. And it stuck with me. It wasn't forefront of mind, but all throughout my career up to the point that I came to work for IDA, this realization that uh, there is a, a night sky out there that's just filled with stars and that mostly in cities, we don't see it because of the city lights that became a passion. Like we have to solve this problem. We have to bring back this access to the night to more people. And that's really what drives me in my work now. Cool. So to, to step, to take a step back real quick, what is the international dark sky association? So we're a nonprofit organization, or in some parts of the world, they would call us an NGO, a non-governmental organization, that was founded here in Tucson a little over 30 years ago. We were founded by two astronomers. One of them was amateur and one was professional, and they were concerned about the skies getting brighter over our city for their respective purposes. But they had the foresight already by the 80s to understand that it wasn't a problem that was unique to Tucson or to the United States, but really to the world. And so that's why we were founded from the beginning as an international organization with the mission to preserve and protect the night sky, both through good conservation practice, but also by engaging the outdoor lighting industry from the very beginning. And that's still a core part of what we do because our mission is not to turn the world's lights off. 
we don't think that's a solution to this problem. Instead, we need to engage with people where they live and work, and we need to engage with the industry that provides the products that light outdoor spaces at night. And our goal really is to improve the visibility of the ground by keeping the light on the ground and keeping it out of the night sky. So what sort of, uh, so have the lighting companies been receptive to working with you guys on this? By and large, lighting companies have been quite receptive to this, in part because they have come to realize that there is a healthy market for what we call dark sky friendly outdoor lighting products. We've run a program called Fixture Seal of Approval for about 20 years or so, and that directly engages with the manufacturers by providing a certification process. So if they will design their products in a certain way that keeps, again, the light on the ground where it's needed, keeps it out of the night sky, has some other considerations, and they can demonstrate with laboratory test results that they meet those criteria, we'll give them kind of a gold star. They can literally put our service mark on their packaging. And when people see that, they'll know, if you go right into a home improvement store and pick up a box off the shelf, and if you see that mark, you know that that is what we consider to be a good outdoor lighting product. Uh, And so they increasingly companies come to us. They want this certification. It's seen as something valuable uh, in their industry and a benefit to their business. So I think one of the first times we had ever really heard about this was when we first started with the Texas Master Naturalist Program um, as newbie Texans. And one of our uh, first meetings, there were some folks talking about going to a state park and doing a night sky survey of the lighting at that at that location. So is that something, um, how, how would one learn about what they can do to, you know, make their own personal area or maybe like a park or something that they work at uh, more friendly to dark skies? <laughs> I guess is a weird way of saying it. <laughs> no, that's a great question, Hannah. And, and what it gets to is this idea that we really believe in that everyone who wants to play a role in solving this problem can do something that is useful. So in other words, there is no act undertaken that's too small or doesn't have some meaning to it. And that that's as simple as a property owner uh, looking at their home. You know, let's say you're in a residential area and looking at the exterior lighting on, on the house and asking simple questions like, what is the function of this light? Is it serving a purpose? Is it the right amount of light for whatever the task is? Is it too much? Is it trespassing? Is it falling on the neighbor's houses, windows, and maybe bothering somebody that sits inside. Just basic questions and considerations about this lighting. And if everybody did that, the the effect would be tremendous. Um, I like to use the analogy of of this kind of pollution as compared to others, which is if you're working on something like water pollution or air pollution, and you stop whatever the source is of the pollution, it can take a long time for the pollutant to leave the space, right? If it's a river and it's been polluted with industrial chemicals, it could be decades for enough water to flush through the system to get rid of the pollutant. We can see an immediate change because our pollutant literally leaves at the speed of light as soon as we make a change to the source. So, so it's, I mean, it's almost instant gratification. And if we committed to this, we would see a change immediately. And so that's sort of the advice that we um, provide to people and the sort of thing that, that, you know, there's even a program for this uh, you can get to on our website for residential homeowners um, to, to survey their property and look for these opportunities. 
We also engage with parks, as you suggested, same sort of thing. We engage with entire communities. There have been um, there are smaller cities, towns, that sort of thing that have really swapped out their, their stock of public lighting, street lighting, for example, to better standards. Um, all of these things contribute in important and meaningful ways to helping solve this problem. That's, that's really interesting. Uh, an interesting thought about the pollution that it's instant gratification. As soon as, as soon as you fix the problem, it's immediately solved. It's not a, oh, well, we'll see, we'll see fish returning eventually. It's like, no, no, no. You turn off those lights or you, you turn them in such a way that they're not pointed at the skies. And all of a sudden you have a night sky and it's just instantaneously better. <laughs> That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So you, you you mentioned communities and um, that they, they you can work with communities to uh, make make their the whole community as a, a whole better, changing out public lighting and stuff like that. Is is there? Um, I, I think I read that you guys have like a certification that you could get certified as a dark sky community, or mm-hmm. like there's different levels among that. How does a community go about doing something like that with you guys? Mm-hmm. That's another one of our programs that's, um, in fact, this is the 20th anniversary year called International Dark Sky Places. And it started in 2001 with the designation of a city here in Arizona called Flagstaff as the world's first international dark sky community. And since then, we've designated about 170 places in about 20 countries. And the program is just, it's doing fantastically right now. It's just growing by leaps and bounds. And um, to to sort of condense the process, we publish a set of standards to our website uh, for situations like cities. So, you know, developed areas, but then also for parks and nature reserves and kind of protected areas Um, and even some places that are sort of between those. So uh, parks that are on the fringes of urban areas where the sky is still fairly bright because of the presence of the city, but people are doing important work on the ground and we want to recognize that. And that's really, at the end of the day, it's a recognition program. And the recognition is for the efforts that people are undertaking to make things better. So it's not, we don't just kind of look at the map and say, oh, this area over here is dark. Let's give them an award for being dark. We want to encourage people to be actively involved in the protection of nighttime darkness and the night sky. And so we publish a set of guidelines to our website. Whoever rises to that standard and can show that they make an application to us, they can demonstrate in the application that they meet all the criteria. Um, We will give them that certification. So it's, again, it's kind of like the way we encouraged lighting manufacturers to get in on this game. We also encourage people who, you know, are maybe on city councils or involved in park management, um, people who have some authority to make some changes on the ground especially with lighting, um, that we offer something that's seen as a value and that whoever rises to that standard and achieves all of those requirements can get that sort of gold star from us that says, hey, you're doing an exceptional job. And it's come to be considered quite valuable, especially for the parks and even for some of the communities as part of their overall um, tourism marketing strategy. And, And it's drawing people and they're bringing their resources and their spending money and it's working out really well for the places that have sought this certification. Well, and you know, dark skies are becoming 
or well, they were a rare thing in a lot of areas and probably still are. And we're on the Oregon coast here and we have a fantastic dark sky. It's not, you know, perfect. I mean, it, but... it really helps that uh, <laughs> half of our entire horizon is just ocean. That there's, <laughs> that, that, that uh-huh. there's no lights, no, no artificial boats. lights. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Mm -hmm. But we see a huge difference from people coming out from Portland, coming out to, you know, the the beach and like, oh, my gosh, I can see stars. I can see, you know, Orion and things like that. Mm -hmm. So that definitely is a tourist draw in our area, at least. But what other sorts of things could like a citizen such as myself, you know, go to a city council and say, this is why Mm -hmm. I think this is important and you guys should work on pursuing this? Right. That's one thing that people can do is they, they can get involved with their local decision makers, whether it's a council or, um, you know, up to and including members of state legislatures or even members of Congress, because it's a it's a problem that exists on multiple legal jurisdictions. Although, at least here in the U.S., a lot of the, the public policy that's surrounding the ideas of outdoor lighting use and how it impacts the night sky much of that policy is really made at the local level. So really the biggest impact I think people can have in general is to talk to their local leaders, um, you know, ask them to enact quality outdoor lighting policies, like a lighting ordinance in your, your city or town. Um, we have a model for that that's available through our website. So a community that decided to do it, the local government uh, isn't out there wondering, well, what should we do? Like, what are the best practices? How should we write this language? We have a model that they can look at and adapt to their needs. Um, people can talk to individual property owners like businesses in their communities, whether or not there's a lighting policy that guides how they're supposed to use their public or their, their light at night. Um, in some cases, it's just simply asking. And in many cases where there's a, a conflict between neighbors, where I was describing you know, the light from from one house is shining on another, it's, it's relations between neighbors. And that could be uh, the light from a business shining into a residential area. Just talking to people, um, it doesn't have to be this thing where, well, we don't talk about that because it's impolite to do so. I've seen really great outcomes when property owners have talked to each other and had this dialogue and said, hey, your light's kind of shining over here. And we don't really appreciate that. And oftentimes, if the light is shining on the neighbor's property, it's also some of it is going up into the night sky. So just redirecting those lights, changing how they're aimed, that's half the problem right there. And a lot of times, the sort of offending property owner will say, I had no idea that this was a problem. I didn't realize that I was creating these conditions for you. And they're glad to fix it. So even if they're not in under any legal obligation to do so, if we just talked about it among each other as residents in these areas and property owners, we could solve a lot of the problem that way. Uh, And then, you know, if people want to get even further involved in this, we have a a really great advocacy program through my organization where people can go out there and they can sort of be the ambassadors in their communities and and be the the sort of the go-to for a lot of these uh, questions and concerns and talk to councils and that kind of a thing. Um, So there really is something for everybody to be involved in this overall movement, depending on how deeply involved they want to become. That sounds really cool to be an ambassador for yeah. this program. That's definitely something you should do, Eric. Sure. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I really enjoy looking at a night sky and seeing all the stars, but what really is the benefit? Like, why why should people try to preserve dark skies? 
At the end of the day, I think people should try to preserve dark skies because it is something that was once common throughout the world and accessible to everybody. And it's largely gone, especially from the more industrialized parts of the world. And as humans, our connection to that is vast and deep and very old. Uh, astronomy was probably the first science. It certainly was one of the first cultural things that we did as humans. And we have evidence of that going back tens of thousands of years. So we've had a, a cultural connection to the night sky that extends back deep into the recesses of time as far as us as humans on this planet. And it's only very recently that we've lost that connection. And now we've had two and three generations of people growing up in places where you really can't see the sky very well at night because of, of pollution from electric lights. But if you set that aside, if you said, well, you know, I'm not so concerned about astronomy or it's not a big deal to me, I can make arguments to you that you, you're going to care about something that this affects, whether it's wildlife biology, which there's a, a huge, huge impact. And every year that goes by, we just we understand more about the significance and the severity of that impact to all kinds of, of wildlife. And even if you don't care about cute sea turtles or whatever, um, you probably care about where your food comes from. Light pollution is having a significant impact on pollinating insects throughout the world. And mm -hmm. that is a key uh, element in what provides our food crops. If we lose our pollinators, we can't do our work that, our, that work ourselves. Um, and it's already a case that the pollinating insect populations are in um, rapid decline in places like North America and Europe. And it may be not the case that light pollution is driving that, but it could be what pushes some of them over the edge, some of the pollinator species. And that's not being helped by other pressures like climate change. So there's a there's a nexus there with food security. Do we want to be able to feed the, the world into the future? We need the benefit of pollinating insects. We know they're affected by light pollution. This is something we should be concerned about. So you say, okay, I'll starve to death. I don't care about food. <laughs> what about where are we going to get all of our energy? How are we going to, to continue to light the world and to drive our economy? Wasted light is wasted energy, wasted electricity, and it's wasted money as well. So, uh, you know, then that brings up issues of climate change because we're still burning a lot of carbon to generate all this electricity. And if we're throwing away some fraction of it, we're warming the world without any, any realizing any benefit from that. Um, so, okay, I don't care. The world can, you know, boil over as far as I'm concerned. There are important concerns about traffic safety, crime, the interaction with outdoor light at night and those subjects is still hotly contested. We don't really know the full extent yet. We're still trying to work that out. Um, but we know that, you know, you add a little bit of light to your streets and that's good. It keeps you safe. You add too much, that can be dangerous, hmm. right? Um, and on top of it all, you say, I, you know, okay, fine. I'll get hit by a car at night or whatever. Um, the, the, the last sort of major subject that this touches on um, is human health. And although we don't get the majority of our light exposure at night in outdoor settings, we do get some. Think of the street light outside somebody's bedroom window that's shining in every night at a very low level for years. I talked to a health researcher about that once who said, we have no idea what that does to the human body. Most people think about the bright sources of light our environment, but think about in a sleeping room, if you're chronically exposed to dim light at night, there's some evidence that that's strongly linked to metabolic disorders like obesity and diabetes and may have to do 
with the onset of certain kinds of cancer. I'm not saying that streetlights give you cancer, <laughs> but I'm saying that we know from lab studies that when you expose humans to light at the wrong time of night, especially in the wrong colors, that it disrupts the circadian system. And we know that itself is then connected to a lot of these adverse health outcomes. So there's really something in this almost for everybody, even if you don't care one whit about astronomy, in the time since we have existed as an organization, we've come to really understand all of these other effects that light pollution has. And we think that just adds to the urgency of the need to solve this problem. I, I feel like that literally just hit every <laughs> every possible person, no matter what your interest is. If you're if you're interested in in human history, sure. If you're interested in animals, you hit it. If you're interested in security, if, like everything, like that's that's insane. And I had not even considered pollinators being affected by the mm -hmm. night sky conditions being ruined. I I didn't. I I always think of birds, mammals, people. Th things that and turtles because there's been a big push about uh, um, uh, in, an informational push about sea turtles and how they're affected by light pollution. But I, I never, I didn't know that pollinators were affected by light pollution. So that's that's just even one more step to argue against people. Like you need to point your lights at the ground. <laughs> point, be more efficient. Right. With your lighting. Be more efficient with your lighting. Yeah. Right. Right. That's really all we're asking for at the end of the day, and that's a that's a good point, Eric. Um, and I should add to what I said, this is really a, a not a partisan issue, um, given how politically charged and polarized our society is right now. It's remarkable to me how this cuts across partisan lines, and it doesn't cause people to throw up the shields that almost every other social issue does. We deal with people across the political spectrum, even the ones that you think wouldn't necessarily be likely supporters of our cause, because oftentimes it's linked to environmentalism. But the, the birding community, the conservation community generally, um, you know, all 50 states, all people from all walks of life, we found that this appeals to. And really the, the, um, the only roadblock at this point, which we struggled with for our entire existence, is we're still climbing the curve in terms of awareness that people by and large still either they've never heard of this problem before or they've never really heard anything about it indicating what all of these effects are. So again, like if, if we lay out this case and say, really, there's something here for everybody, no matter what your interest is, we think that that actually bodes quite well for recruiting more people um, to join this movement and to do something meaningful to try to solve the problem. So what do you want to ask our listeners to do? I would ask your listeners to think about what's in their control, which for many of them, if they're homeowners, it's going to be their own property. Uh, as somebody who has rented property for much of my life, I can tell you that yeah, there's even a place for people that are, are renters to talk to landlords about this. Uh, even if you live in, in a, a big apartment building or something like that, Almost everything has some exterior lighting on it, at least for purposes of safety. And the question to ask is, of that lighting, which I have some degree of control over, what does it do? Why is it there? A lot of times a person will buy a home or they put up some flood lighting outside 25 years ago and they've totally forgotten what it was that they put it up for. And see, that's sort of the first question is, what is the lighting that's around me where I live? Um, or if you're a business owner at your, your, you know, if 
your place of business. What does it do? Um, if you can identify a good use for that light, keep on using it. We're not going to tell you to turn lights off that have really clearly identified purposes that ensure your safety, being able to move about safely at night, uh, to perform outdoor tasks. These are all really good, legitimate uses for outdoor light at night. So once you've kind of passed that test, and if you find a light that doesn't seem to be serving any purpose, either you can disconnect it, which is the simplest thing to do, or another option is to put it on a motion sensor or a timer. So the light is on when you need it to be on and otherwise it's off. If you just feel like, cause a lot of people don't feel safe unless they have some outside lighting at night. And I won't downplay that, that sense of a feeling of security. I can't tell you for certain whether the light is actually making you any safer, but it makes you feel safe and that makes you feel better that's another good reason to use it. And it's great to put a light like that on a motion sensor. Having talked to a lot of law enforcement about this, I'm told at least anecdotally that in places where there's crime in residential areas that um, criminals seem to steer clear of neighborhoods where motion sensor equipped lights are common. Hmm. Um, and the way it was put to me by one police officer that I talked to here in Arizona was, if you're a criminal doing something nefarious outside somebody's house and a light suddenly comes on that you didn't know was there, at first you don't know whether it's a motion sensor that turned on the light or if it was the owner of the, the light flipping a switch who is also holding a shotgun was the way that he put it to me. So so it just, it, the element of surprise seems to be useful in deterring any social behavior at night. and a properly maintained and, and calibrated motion sensor that's not triggering every time a leaf blows past, right? Um, really can be advantageous in that. So for the lighting that you have on your property that's serving a purpose, look at its characteristics. Is it bright enough? Is it too bright, right? What's the right amount of light for that task? Does it need to be on all the time? Again, maybe you can put it on a timer uh, or put it on a motion sensor. Um, is it lighting the task area correctly? If you're lighting a path, for example, is the light well contained by the path? Is it spilling into the adjacent part of your property? Or worse, is it spilling over the property line into somebody else's property that probably doesn't want it? You can do uh, different things with aiming or shielding the light to, to kind of contain the surface that receives it. That can go a long way. And we really want people to think about also the color of the light as I mentioned kind of uh, indirectly a little while ago, that color of light matters, especially for insects. And the bluer colors are what are so problematic for them. Mm. It's the reason why bug lights are yellow and they're not some other color because yellow turns out for many insects to be the least attractive color of light to them. So make sure you're using warmer toned lights and that use as little blue as possible because we know that's the kind of light that has the biggest environmental impact. If people did those things, I think they would find not only is it aesthetically better, that it just looks better at night instead of blasting light everywhere, that you're, you're really targeting it to what you need it to do, and you're reducing the waste in the process. We would go a long way to solving this problem if everybody did that. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, that is. Um, so our last question for you. Um, so we've been to a lot of places that, you know, are darker than <clears throat> cities. And we'll look up at the sky and we'll see Orion's belt because we've heard or we've, you know, read that that is the best um, way the, the, to gauge your yeah, dark sky. Yeah. yeah. So how how do I gauge a zero through, you know, nine, I think is the 
on the mole sc- No. You know more about this than me. I don't know. It, yeah, <laughs> I, I, know, I know there's a scale, and you're supposed to count the number of stars in Orion's belt to determine where you are on the scale. Am I completely off base? Am I, am I way, way off base for determining how dark your uh, sky is? You're in the ballpark, certainly. <laughs> the ballpark, right. uh, there, so there, there, is, there is a scale. It's called the Bortle scale that was devised by an amateur astronomer about 20 years ago. And it was a, an attempt to just have this sort of qualitative ranking. And it's on this one through nine scale where one is the best. Think, you know, middle of the Pacific Ocean, far away from society to nine is the worst. You're standing in Times Square or downtown Hong Kong or somewhere like that. And you can't see really any stars in the sky. Um, and there are different ways of gauging that. It's, there's a, if you, if you just look that up, a Bortle, B-O-R-T-L-E, if you Google that, you'll find it. Okay. Um, the, the different levels on the scale have these sort of little qualitative descriptions. And they do mention a few, I don't know if they mention Orion, but they do mention a few um, otherwise prominent things in the night sky that you can look for as indicators of where you're at on the scale. Um, there are some other ways of assessing that as well by doing star counts, which is what you're, what you're talking about. There's a program called Globe at Night that's run by an organization that we work with a lot that is a citizen science program to engage people in doing those star counts to figure out what the brightness of the night sky is. It doesn't require any equipment. And you can go to their website and you can log your observations and you can see it on a map in context with other observations that other people in your area or all over the world have made so that we can try to understand this problem better. Um, but, but the idea that's underlying all of this is that there are degrees of degradation caused by light pollution as manifested by the quality of the night sky. And that is this shorthand, we can give a number to approximate what those conditions are like, but just be aware that it's still a bit of a subjective scale and that not everybody will make the same estimate, but once you have an estimate and it, the same person comes back and looks at it again in future years, you can start to get a sense of whether things are changing either uh, for good or for ill. Uh, so it's something to, to look into, go estimate what your own night sky is like. It'll tell you where you're at in that, that sort of overall scale and how significant the problem is where you live. Okay. Cool. Well, are there any other resources, like as we wrap this up, that our um, listeners could be directed to? So you've got uh, um, the Globe at Night, or Globe at Night, which is their website is globeatnight.org is their website. Of course, I encourage people to visit our website, which is darksky.org. That's all one word, darksky. Um, we have a number of resources that are freely available. We hope people will check out and use in their own communities and help us lead this effort to solve this problem. We really think that the, the conditions will improve for everybody if we do. Well, thank you so much, John. We learned a ton and we look forward to going out and counting our stars and, you know, learning more about this stuff and hopefully making our community a dark sky community. I think that would be really cool. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's too bad we didn't meet you when we were down in Tucson, <laughs> like, a couple months ago. <laughs> yeah, I know. Unusual circumstances. Yeah. But thank you both for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity and, um, and hope that this has been useful for your listeners. So thank you, John, for joining us for this um, to tell us more about International Dark Skies. It's just such a cool program that I think, you know, doesn't get as much recognition mm-hmm. as it should because it's so 
amazing to go to a place that is a dark sky. And I think that that's something that everybody should get the opportunity to do. Go out and see the Milky Way and, you know, meteors, showers, and things like that. And they help protect these special places. Oh, for sure. So you can go out and see it. But also, you know, it's for human health and for species. Because there's a lot of species out there that require darkness to be able to function properly. Yeah, and um, one of the one of the big things that I feel like is a really good takeaway, two two really good takeaways from what John was saying was the species that even insects are affected by the night lights to the point that they'll stop the reproductive cycles if the lights aren't doing the right things. So if you've got too many bright lights. And those are bird food. Yeah, it's bird food. Yeah. Bird food is bird that's bird related. Yeah. But the other thing is that um, just because a, a place inherently has a dark sky doesn't mean that they automatically have a dark sky certification or that they're anything. You, you have to do something specific to be promoting and conserving the dark sky that you have. So you have to initiate a bunch of a bunch of paperwork stuff to maintain that you have a dark sky. And so that's that's one step towards getting certification is having those ordinances in place and having those organizations to promote a dark sky for your area. And we want so, to mention that because yeah. our, our town <laughs> that we live in, they have this whole webpage about like, we're dark sky friendly, but none, nobody has done the paperwork to yeah. get it designated as a dark sky we're, we're halfway there. We have most of the ordinances in place. Not all of them, but most of them. But... <laughs> And, and we inherently have a dark sky because we're a rural county and a rural city and it's just kind of out where we have the coast. So we're like we mentioned to John, like half of our horizon is ocean, like mm-hmm. half of it's ocean. The other half is forest. Yeah. So it's a very little amount of our sky is an area that light can be being artificial lights coming from. So we inherently have a very dark sky, but that doesn't mean that we're dark sky certified. Like there, there there's some um, things to do to promote it and to. To, and to like solidify it and to get listed as a dark sky community. So and it's something we should definitely do it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's something that can actually be, um, you know, part of the tourism of an area is the dark sky. Like there's yeah. a there's ah there's a state park that I went to in Idaho that that's like their thing is like dark skies and yeah. also like Big Bend State Big Park Bend. in uh, Texas. Bra- Brazos Bend has a dark sky. Um, they're certified as a dark sky park or something. Cause they have, they have, a um, they've gone through the effort in, in <laughs> Texas because they, they have a, um, a big telescope there. Crater of the moon. That's where I went. Crater of the moon in, in Idaho. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Anyways. That place is out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> any, anyways, all, all of this is to say that you, um, just because you have a dark sky doesn't mean you're inherently a dark sky certified area. But also just because you don't have a super dark sky doesn't mean that you can't be designated yeah. as a dark sky area. Exactly. I mean, that just means that you're not like a, what is it, a nine on the... Bortle scale? Bortle scale. Or a one on the Bortle scale. Man, John, I was just listening to this. John just told us. You you guys all know right now, but I can't remember because I'm I'm dumb. (laughs) Just because, like, you're not at the top of the Bortle scale doesn't mean that you can't be designated as a dark sky Exactly, yeah. So, um, yeah, look more into that. And also their website has a lot of really useful information about why dark skies are important. Um, Not just what John said. I mean, he had a lot of great information, but there's more information online, too. So if you're interested, check it out. And uh, we're going to leave you with the last few minutes of why we were interested in doing this in the first place. What got us started on it? Yeah, so last uh, last winter we were down in the southwest and we happened to visit Joshua Tree National Park. 
<laughs> so we, we we listened. We, there was there was a um, there was a meteor shower going on at the time. It wasn't the Perseids, so it wasn't like a big huge mind. I think there was also it was, a gem, it was the Geminids. There was a little bit of cloud cover. I think it was the Geminids we were there for. But um, the there was a little bit of cloud cover, and it wasn't super crazy dark. But they've but they've done all the paperwork to do the to certify to try to do what they can to protect what what dark sky they have, which it is very dark there. Mm-hmm. And so we we went ahead and tried to get an audio recording of a visual experience for you. So, <laughs> like how you portray that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we I mean, talked in the dark. <laughs> we talked in the dark, and we were very quiet about it. And there was, I I feel like the quietness of everything around us helped, like, like show the importance show of the it. importance of how dark it was. So, okay. So you all sit yeah. back. I'm gonna go back in my FM voice. FM voice. Sit back and enjoy as we spend an evening at Joshua Tree National Park. How many stars can you see on Orion's belt there? I think I can only see three. How many can you see? That's all I can see, three. But I feel like I've never really experienced, like, what he looks like laying there, you know? Because, like, you can, like... <laughs> well, he's, he's laying down now, but he doesn't, <laughs> yeah. he doesn't always lay down. From our perspective, he's laying down. And, I mean, you can, like, see that really bright star, I think, is probably his head and, like, his two feet. And then his arms up shooting the arrow. While laying down, taking a nap. So Orion's both taking a nap <laughs> and shooting an arrow at the same time. He's pretty cool. <laughs> um, yeah, and also Milky Way is right overhead. And just silence. Except knowing the recorder, it's probably picking up a plane that's flashing on the cosmos somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it's it's picking up some noise somewhere, I'm sure. But I so, don't hear anything. <laughs> so we're here at Joshua Tree National Park. Um, we've never been here before and always wanted to visit because Joshua trees sound really intriguing. Giant yuccas that <laughs> are the size of saguaro cactuses, apparently. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, I was looking it up on online and noticed that it said it's an international dark sky. And, you know, we, and it's very close to our route home from Arizona. And we're, I mean, suburban kids, so we didn't get a whole lot of dark sky. And so we wanted to come out and see what it, all the fuss was really about. So what do you think? That's pretty spectacular. I mean... <laughs> Canyon Beach has got a dark sky, too. It does. And I've seen the Milky Way over Haystack Rock before, which is just spectacular. Never like those pictures, you know, that I see people... Those st- stitched together, <laughs> like, long exposure, the 30 Instagram minutes. Instagram pictures. Yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> so the antenna bobble, and I thought it was an animal. <laughs> um, well, but, I mean, you've got the Milky Way here that's... Uh, with the Joshua tree silhouetted in front of it. Like, sure, we can't take a picture of that and make it look cool, but we can see it with our eyes. Yeah, that's true. And it's it's just absolutely gorgeous. Um, we are seeing a lot of plane traffic, which is kind of surprising, uh, given COVID. When we were in Tucson, we drove through the airport, and it was empty, the R- airport there. The, the rental car place was empty. Everything was empty. It was like a ghost town, essentially. But I can see one, two, three... Four, five, six, seven, eight, 
ten planes at least. Well, they don't they don't necessarily have to be passenger planes. They could be cargo. You could That's FedEx, true. UPS, all they they ship all, all sorts of stuff. It's all you Amazon <laughs> Amazon orders. That, yeah, <laughs> the sky is full of Amazon orders right now. Um, well, we there's did, also satellites flying by. There are, yeah. And we did see a shooting star. We're right at the tail end of the um, Geminid meteor shower. Yeah, I think two days ago was the peak. So. But right as we got out of the car, I said, man, I wish we would have been at a place like this for the meteor shower. And then one fell right out of the sky. So that was amazing. It's just that absolute silence. Silence, dark sky. It's a pretty cool place to be. I'm still hoping for some owls or maybe other (laughs) critters to... Uh, go past us we have seen like these little shrews running back and forth on the road yeah well i'm excited about the mars saturn jupiter the moon the what is it a waning crescent i don't know it's a little tiny little tiny sliver right now yeah and you know from uh all the perspectives that we've been able to get here on the night sky at joshua tree we've wandered you know, through the park to five or six different wandered in the Jeep. Yeah. Pull off <laughs> points. Um, but you still do get a pretty good glow from, um, the towns of, uh, Palm Springs and Indio just nearby. So I don't know what level, um, the night sky is here, but it's still, you know, pretty fantastic compared to what you'd see in like downtown Portland. Uh, or oh, yeah. you'd be I mean, lucky if you saw any of Orion. I mean, you if we got our binoculars out, we could probably I think I think there's four stars for Orion's belt. And maybe maybe the sun's not just, I mean the sun only set like 2 hours ago. So I don't it's know, maybe, maybe it's still not down far enough. Maybe or maybe that is that glow from the cities. But it's just barely barely something in the west, kind of the southwest from us. But night skies are something that are incredibly important, yeah. Um, especially to wildlife, and also I think to humans too. You know, it gives us a chance to really kind of like settle down and and enjoy just what nature has to offer in a setting that you don't get to see all that, or a lot of people don't get to see all that often. Well, of it's course. getting all the artificial lights off and just having just natural lighting. And surprisingly, it's not frigid. <laughs> Which I really thought it was going to be, since we're in the <laughs> desert in the middle of the, the high desert. We're we're at like I, I, think, I think the last four thousand feet. feet. Yeah, I think the the hilltop that we were on was something like five thousand. Yeah, I think it was like fifty two hundred was the um, peak at the top of the short little hike at the end of that where the parking area was. Well, it's certainly beautiful. How well, was that? That was fun. <laughs> Yeah. That, was a, that was a fun experience out there. It was nice and quiet and dark. And and I'm really excited about... There was an antenna bobble that scared the heck out of you. But, you know, whatever. A what? <laughs> the, the antenna bobble. It was... Oh. Yeah. Uh, Anyways. I'm, I'm really excited <laughs> about going to, um, to I'm hoping, Saguaro National Park for the Perseid meteor shower when yeah, we're down in Tucson. Be, hopefully. Yeah. So that's my goal. Um, and I hope you all get to, a chance to see the Perseids and enjoy it. And it happens every year. So every year? we're making a big deal about it right now, but it happens every single August. So if you're listening to this in 2014. <laughs> 20, if you're listening to it in the past. <laughs> in the past. If you're listening to this in 2024, <laughs> you just wait until August and you'll um, see the Perseid meteor shower. Heck, even 2025. You think? Yeah. 
It's, it's got like four more years in it. <laughs> um, but there's, you know, a number of meteor showers that happen regularly. There's a number of other astronomical events that occur throughout the year. Um, and even if it's not, you know, there's a meteor shower, whatever, Jupiter, Mars is visible. Like, it's still just so relaxing to go sit out in the quiet dark, I mm-hmm. think. So I hope you get a chance to do that. Um, if you haven't ever seen a dark sky, you know, come over where we're at on the Oregon coast. We have a pretty good dark sky parts of the year. Yeah. Well, thank you guys all for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and or learned something new. Please rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Music, and anywhere else you listen to us. If you'd like to connect with us on the socials, you can follow us at Hannah Goes Birding and Eric Goes Birding on Instagram. You can also follow us on Twitter at We Go Birding. Our Facebook page is Hannah and Eric Go Birding. We also have a TikTok, but we're <laughs> trying, but we're very busy trying to post things on TikTok. We have um, like a two-month gap. But yeah, there's a big, long gap. Uh, we're, we're trying to come up with things for, for TikTok because TikTok's a lot of fun to sit and waste your time Oh my gosh, at. so much time. So much wasted time. Anyways, um, we also have a website, um, Hannah and Eric Goberting at, um, or sorry, our email, Hannah and Eric Goberting at gmail.com and our website, www.gobertingpodcast.com. And tell us what you like, tell us what you hated, and share us with your friends.